Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Trudeau's Troubles. I am both surprised and disappointed by her decision to step down. Controversy continues to swirl around the Prime Minister as he tries to contain the damage in the wake of the resignation of the former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Why did she resign? Was she pressured to help SNC-Lavalin avoid fraud and corruption charges? The Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, joins us today with where he wants all this to go. And then, bird box investigation? Canadians are, are rightly concerned right now uh, about uh, the issues related to the former Attorney General. Did the government just set up a genuine investigation into the Raybould controversy, or does it have a political blindfold on in order to prevent it from finding anything? Liberal Minister Carla Coltrow is here on why the government will not let Wilson Raybould speak. Plus, former Attorney General Peter McKay and Manitoba NDP leader Wad Canoe join the scrum to weigh in on the political fallout. Then, carbon battle. The federal government cannot, uh, as per the Constitution, impose a tax in some areas of the nation, but not all areas of the nation. Can the provinces legally say no to the federal government's carbon tax? A critical court case over the carbon tax is taking place in Saskatchewan, and that will decide it. Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe is here on why his province is saying, butt out. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. If she felt that she had received pressure, uh, it was her obligation, her responsibility to come uh, to talk to me, and she did not do that in the fall. Look, there's no way to spin this. This is the biggest controversy facing the Trudeau government. It's called the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and what started off as merely a cabinet shuffle busting down the Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to Veterans Affairs, no disrespect to veterans, but it is seen as a lower portfolio. This is now metastasized. The Globe and Mail reported the Prime Minister's office attempted to pressure Jody Wilson-Raybould into abandoning charges of fraud and corruption against the Quebec construction giant, SNC-Lavalin. The Prime Minister called that false, saying Wilson-Raybould never spoke up about this before her resignation, that her presence in Cabinet spoke for itself. Well, then she promptly resigned. What does that tell you? Wilson-Raybould has not spoken about the allegations publicly yet. She clearly wants to. She's just hired a former Supreme Court justice as her legal counsel. And there are also now two investigations underway, one by the Ethics Commissioner and another by the Parliamentary Justice Committee. But what will they uncover? And why did the former minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, resign from Cabinet? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer. Mr. Scheer, great to have you on the program. I've got to start with this Justin, uh, Justice Committee, controlled by the Liberals, it's called for an investigation, but they won't call Jody Wilson-Raybould to appear. What do you make of that investigation? Well, there's only one conclusion. They're trying to hide something. Uh, if Justin Trudeau were truly innocent, he would welcome the light of day being shone on this whole affair. Uh, we put forward a list of witnesses that included uh, people who interacted with SNC-Lavalin, uh, his principal secretary, Gerald Butts, uh, Katie Telford. We also wanted to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould herself. I think Canadians are sick and tired of uh, hearing what Justin Trudeau is willing to tell us about what his conversations were with, uh, with the former Attorney General. It's time that we hear from her directly. Uh, so to have uh, Liberal members on the committee vote down uh, the ability to talk to the people that, are act that were actually involved and to summon instead people who have already said 
that they're not that they weren't there for those conversations. The the new attorney general uh, in in the House of Commons said that he couldn't answer questions because he wasn't there. He wasn't privy to those conversations. Why would we want to hear from people who weren't involved with the actual actions uh, that are being alleged? Yeah, well, David Lametta, the new attorney general, was on this program last week, and he said, "I don't believe an investigation is even needed." Now, the prime minister's argument, Andrew Shear, and I want your well, his argument lately, has been Jody Wilson-Raybould never spoke up about any pressure before. In fact, she stayed in the cabinet. She took another job. And then he said it was her responsibility to say something if something wrong was happening. What do you make of that? Is that a fair assessment? Well, again, it's his words. Uh, he's the one that is speaking for Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, he's the one that refuses to waive any kind of privilege that he may have. I'd rather hear what her interpretations of, uh, of the issue are. Uh, and again, you know, to, to, to have people like the new Attorney General say, we don't need an investigation because Justin Trudeau told us we don't need one. I've never heard of a judge throwing out a court case because the defendant said he wasn't guilty. I mean, if that was the, the standard that we have in our legal system, we wouldn't ever have trials in this country. Uh, this is ridiculous. But if the Justice Committee does not call Jody Wilson-Raybould, if they don't call key members of the Prime Minister's office like Gerald Butts, as you are asking for, what can you do? For example, will you ask Conservative senators to start a Senate investigation? Well, that is certainly another option. Uh, you know, the, the Prime Minister likes to pretend that uh, the people that he's appointed to the Senate uh, are independent, even though they often, uh, mo most of the time, vote with the government. So this will be an opportunity to, to put that to the test. The House of Commons Justice Committee will meet again uh, this Tuesday. We will again reintroduce our list of witnesses, the people that were actually involved, the people in the Prime Minister's office who were lobbied 50 times by SNC-Lavalin. You know, f at least 14 of those meetings touched on the subjects of justice and law enforcement. Uh, this is a, a construction company, an engineering company. What okay, went but, on in those meetings? Okay, what let, let me ask were you. made? I uh, think those are fair questions. Those are fair questions for sure. But Mr. Shearer, they lobbied everybody. They lobbied key members of the Prime Minister's office, key members of the government. But in May of 2018, they also lobbied you. So when you were lobbied by SNC-Lavalin, by the way, I know that's perfectly legal to get lobbied. Did they ask you, do you support a deferred prosecution agreement? Uh, and if they did, what did you say? What's your answer on that? Uh, it was it was simply a briefing about what was contained in the Liberal government's own legislation. So it was a, it was it was an opportunity for me just to, to receive that information. The, th this provision was included in an omnibus budget bill. Uh, when it was at the Finance Committee, Conservative members of Parliament raised the objection as to why this was being uh, put forward in that way. It, it very much should have been a justice measure to allow that kind of scrutiny. But regardless of that, well, hold on, hold on, just just to be clear, I just want to just press what, back. What, what we're talking about here is the interference. The Director of Public Prosecutions was given the tool by Parliament to make the determination as to whether or not SNC-Lavalin qualified for this new arrangement. Uh, she determined that they didn't. And that's when the political interference is alleged to have happened. So whatever tool Parliament gives to, 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 to judges, to prosecutors, to execute justice, we have to leave the ultimate decisions, the decisions up to those okay. independent agents of our justice system. The uh, allegations of political interference is where th th this whole scandal is focused on and centered on. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Let me just ask you, though, do you support the use of deferred prosecution agreements? Do you support these kind of instruments being used?
I, again, it's, it's, it's up to Parliament to decide what tools to give to uh, public prosecutors and to judges. What I don't support is any interference where when uh, a company or an individual doesn't get the verdict it wants, leaning on elected officials and politicians to pick up the phone and exert pressure uh, to get those decisions reversed. Uh, if SNC-Lavalin or anybody else in Canada has an opportunity to make their case, and they do so, and an independent judicial agent, in this case the Director of Public Prosecutions, and then the Attorney General of Canada decide that it's not appropriate, uh, then that's where it has to end. Does this, in your view, hinge on a cabinet meeting where there's a difference between robust cabinet discussions where the Attorney General may be there, they're discussing SNC-Lavalin, they're discussing the use of a deferred prosecution agreement, and then pressure. What, in your view, is the difference at a cabinet table between pressure and robust discussion. The Attorney General of Canada is different from other cabinet ministers. Uh, obviously, when a minister of one portfolio or another is about to make a decision, uh, cabinet colleagues can weigh in and, and talk about different aspects of the file. But the Attorney General, as the chief legal officer in our country, has the responsibility, the duty, and the requirement to operate in a more independent fashion. And that's why the level of independence on this uh, is more important. And that's why uh, actions and conversations and perhaps threats or innuendo take on a greater meaning in this case. Okay, just last question, and that's key. If the Justice Committee does not invite Jody Wilson-Raybould and key members of the Prime Minister's office to that committee. If they don't do it, how would you characterize that uh, Judicial Committee investigation, that Justice Committee investigation, and what will you do next? Uh, it's a complete sham at that point. Uh, if they, again, prevent the people that were actually involved in the scandal from telling what happened or, or explaining their side of the story, then it's a complete cover-up, and it is just an attempt to distract and to, and to deflect. At that point, we'll be exploring other tools that, that, that we may have uh, to, 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 to get the light shine on this f so that Canadians can restore, have their confidence restored in their justice system. All right, got to leave it there, Andrew Shear. Thank you so much. Appreciate you dropping by the program today. And coming up next on Question Period, do the Liberals really want to get to the truth about why Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned? Have they set up a, as Andrew Shear said, a sham process to avoid just that. Is it missing the point by not calling the woman at the center of it all to testify? We find out next. We speak with Cabinet Minister Carla Qualtro. Stay right here with Question Period. We don't have the tools. We don't have the budget. We don't have the mechanisms to go through the fishing expedition and the kind of witch hunt that the Conservatives would like to see that there's a lot of legal issues coming up in Quebec, and the Prime Minister may well have decided he needed a justice minister that could speak French. If Scott Bryson had not stepped down from Cabinet, Jody Wilson-Raybould would still be Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Well, after all the talking points, the story is false, said the Prime Minister. Jody Wilson-Raybould should have spoken up earlier if she felt pressured into making fraud and bribery charges against SNC-Lavalin go away, he said. She never would have been shuffled if Scott Bryson hadn't first resigned, he said. Asking for her to testify to Justice Committee is a witch hunt, said another Liberal MP. Still, so many questions remain unanswered. Why won't the Prime Minister let Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Attorney General, talk tell her side of the story and why won't the liberal dominated justice committee call her to testify is the investigation 
being set up to fail? Let's find out. Joining me now is Carla Qualtro. She is the Minister of Public Services and Procurement. Uh, Minister, it's great to have you on the program. I got to start with talking about this uh, Justice Committee. The Liberals on the committee control that committee. They refuse to call the very person at the heart of this entire story, which is Jody Wilson-Raybould. How do you justify not wanting to call her in an investigation? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Evan. Um, and and obviously, I'm not a member of that committee. What I understand the process that they've outlined is they've identified three witnesses, but it's my understanding that more could be called. I think we have to let them do the business of their committee and see where it leads. Okay, but do you think, and you're speaking for the government, do you believe if there's any investigation, Jody Wilson-Raybould should be able to speak? I don't think I'm actually in a position to say that. I think that you know she can absolutely speak for herself, and the Prime Minister can speak for himself on these issues. Um, but the Justice Committee is an independent committee, and they will make their decisions, and they will call their witnesses, and this will proceed as it does in committee, independently of anything I may feel or not feel about how they should do their business. The bottom line is, nobody believes this is a true investigation if you're not going to actually call the people uh, who need to talk to talk. So let me ask you another question. Parking the fact that the Justice, Justice Committee so far has not shown any interest in talking to Jody Wilson-Raybould, why doesn't the Prime Minister release her and waive solicitor-client privilege so she feels comfortable that she can talk? Why hasn't he done that? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects to that question. First of all, it's not as simple. I can tell you this as a lawyer, as just waiving solicitor-client privilege. There's a couple of ongoing court cases. There's cabinet confidentiality story rolled into that. Um, it's not just as simple as deciding that you're allowed to talk about X, because the repercussions of, of, of releasing that, um, that privilege can be quite significant. And I think it was prudent for the Prime Minister to ask the, the current Attorney General to explore options and see what can and can't be done but reasonably. And in the course of all these other things happening. But, but here's the problem, uh, Minister. You've got the, the new Attorney General, David Lametti, on this program. He's spoken about it. He said, I believe the Prime Minister. I don't see a need for an investigation. The Prime Minister's speaking about it. And I spoke to the former Attorney General, Peter McKay, who's on our program later. And he said, you can't partially waive privilege. Has the Prime Minister, when he speaks about that, is that implicitly already waiving it and allows Jody Wilson to be able to speak? Yeah, you know, I don't think I'm the best person to offer a legal opinion on that. I think that that will come out in due course. I think we have to wade through all, you know, the permutations of... of I mean, you could imagine the Prime Minister and his or her Attorney General have to be able to talk frankly and with the absolute confidence that they can speak their mind and and that that's in confidence. I, you know, as a lawyer, I can't advise my clients on what to do or not do if I'm worried that at some point in the future um, this is going to come out because that's just not how our legal system works. Like it's a, such a foundational part of our justice system, right. solicitor-client privilege, that it can't be waived lightly. Minister, I, what gets my spidey sense tingling is the lack of curiosity from the Liberal Party. I'm just trying to figure this out. The a Liberal-controlled Justice Committee doesn't want to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould. The Prime Minister hasn't uh, openly said she can. I'm going to talk about it. She can talk about it. Your colleague has resigned. There's now allegations that there was pressure by SNC-Lavalin. SNC-Lavalin had 14 meetings with um, Prime Minister office officials about a deferred prosecution agreement. Are you not curious what happened there? Don't you want to know some fundamental answers if, the, if she was pressured and why she resigned? 
Well, I think we need to step it up a level of, and I think we need to understand that the role that all of us have as cabinet ministers is to, you know, advise the prime minister confidently and to challenge uh, decisions around the cabinet table. And I feel that if I had ever felt any kind of pressure um, that was undue or untoward, that I had an obligation to go to the prime minister. I know if I felt that one of my colleagues was being so pressured, I would also have that obligation to go to the prime minister. And I just, I think this was a this was a public policy decision that played out last year to get into get to get Canada into the business that other countries are in of deferred pro prosecution agreements, and this is how this has played out. It's it's an independent. So decision why did she of resign? Prosecution. I mean, you're, you're in cabinet. If she didn't feel pressured, what do you think is at the heart of her right. resignation then? I'm not privy to her rationale for for resigning. I I. I and I would not speculate. I apologize. I think, it, as as was the prime minister, I was surprised that this happened this week. It was not something I personally certainly expected to happen. Um, I was saddened by her choice to leave. I think she's a you know a valued contributor at in in the robust and and difficult and complicated conversations we have at the cabinet table. And you know the best person to you know to kind of get into that discussion with is is uniquely her. Yeah, which is why everyone wants the Prime Minister to say, please speak. Let me ask you another thing. The Prime Minister said this. He said, I'm surprised, I'm disappointed, but it's not, what she's done is not consistent with the conversation she's had with me, he said. And he also said it was her responsibility, as you've just said, to speak up if she felt pressured. Essentially, the Prime Minister is saying either it was a dereliction of duty because she did not speak up when she should have, or she's not telling the truth. She's lying. Is that really what the Prime Minister is saying about Jody Wilson-Raybould? You know, I, I will not speculate as to what he meant by that. But once again, I'll reiterate that I, you know, I feel a very strong duty to Canadians and to the whole process that if I had ever felt, which I haven't ever, and I can tell you, I mean, I manage tough files myself, and I have frank conversations with the Prime Minister and his office, and if there was ever any time when I felt that I had been pressured to do something that, you know, it was inappropriate levels of pressure, I would have gone to the Prime Minister and I just, that hasn't happened in my experience. I've not had conversations with colleagues where, where they've confided in me that that's happened to them, at which point, again, I would have felt an obligation to go to the Prime Minister. But is the obligation on a minister to speak up against the Prime Minister's office, or is it the obligation of the Prime Minister's office to act legally and not try to pressure the Attorney General? And remember, she's in a different position than you are as a minister. The Attorney Understood. General General's position Understood. is a very different position, and they're not allowed to try to have political interference. So this is different. Other ministers say, well, I never felt yep. pressured. That's a whole different ballgame. She, she's resigned now. It's in stark contrast to what the Prime Minister said. Do you believe it's her responsibility to speak up, or is it the Prime Minister's office not to break the law? Well, I think there's a dual responsibility there, as you've outlined it. I think that we all have to respect that sitting around the table in, you know, wearing the hat of Attorney General, that is a very different function, as you pointed out, than a cabinet minister. Um, so I think it's, but in, in that regard, isn't it then a heightened responsibility to, to speak up when you feel pressure, if, if you're in that unique position around the table with that independence? Um, absolutely, is the Prime Minister's office um, obligated to act within the confines of the law? For sure, and I could. <laughs> that has. There's no evidence. I, I. I have no understanding that that that's even at play here. Finally, fair question to ask in your mind, if she was uh, both 
demoted because she wouldn't play ball with the Prime Minister's office who are trying to give a deferred prosecution agreement to SNC-Lavalin. She wouldn't play ball. She wouldn't recommend to the public prosecutor's office. You know what? Give him the sweetheart deal to avoid a criminal prosecution, and she's busted down to do it. What do you make of that theory? Well, first of all, I kind of reject the idea that fundamentally DPAs are sweetheart deals. We can have that public policy discussion, I guess, if you want another time. But I'm not going to speculate. I have every confidence that when the prime minister said that this is a brand new tool, this tool just came into law, when he said very clearly to the former tenor, sorry, attorney general that, you know, I'm not directing you to do this, this is an independent decision, that that was what happened. I have no reason to believe otherwise, Evan, and I have every confidence in him. Uh, finally, Minister, should she be allowed to remain in caucus? She's left the cabinet. Um, she hasn't said anything. Should Jody Wilson and Raybould be allowed to remain in the Liberal caucus as part of your party? You know, that's a, again, that I think that will play out. Um, I think that there's a discussion to be had if she, you know, as, as I understand it now, is remaining in our caucus and still believes in the 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 platform and the the vision we have for Canada, I welcome her in our caucus. She's a she's a bright, competent, um, thoughtful person who who would be a valued member in our caucus, and I hope she stays. I got to leave it there, Minister Qualter. Great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, the carbon tax debate hits the court, and it could be a decisive battle. Can the provinces really stop the federal government from imposing a carbon tax? Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us next with his side of the argument. Stay right here with Question Period. Conservative politicians in Saskatchewan, where Doug Ford is supporting uh, the fight they have, are not just trying to delay action on climate change, they're actually actively fighting action on climate change. Well, the carbon tax battle is on, and what's at stake is the federal government's plan to impose a carbon tax on provinces who don't want to do it themselves. Now, on one side, you've got the federal government, who's arguing that this is clearly in their jurisdiction. But on the other side, you've got provinces like Saskatchewan and partners like Ontario and New Brunswick who argue, no, this is not constitutional. They say the government cannot impose a price on carbon, especially on some provinces, but not others. Which side will win out? Well, let's find out. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us now from Regina. Premier, uh, lawyers for your province made the argument that the government does not have the right to impose a carbon tax. What, in a nutshell, is your province's argument? Well, we're saying that the, the federal government cannot, uh, as per the Constitution, impose a tax in some areas of the nation, but not all areas of the nation, and that's what they are attempting to do, uh, just because they, they quite simply are picking and choosing which policies they approve of and which they don't. Uh, th this is in contrast to the conversation, uh, the very public conversation that we have had over the last number of years now uh, with respect to is a carbon tax an effective tool to uh, reduce uh, emissions uh, here in Canada. We don't feel it is. And, uh, and, and at what cost uh, to families and to businesses and to our competitiveness. Uh, that's the public conversation that we've had. What we see now happening is the legal conversation around does the federal government even have the constitutional authority to impose a tax uh, like this? So it's really uh, this, this legal argument or this legal conversation is not about climate change. It's not about a carbon tax per se. It's about who has, who has uh, 
the jurisdiction uh, in this case, uh, the province or the federal government. This has happened before with the National Energy Program, happened with uh, you know language uh, rights conversations with respect to Quebec, and uh, we'll be looking uh, for what we hope is a favorable outcome from from our Saskatchewan court. Yeah, Premier, the federal government's argument is this. They say they have the constitutional right to do this under peace, order, and good government. They say climate change is a national emergency. They argue that carbon emissions have no boundaries. This is a national uh, issue because it's, that's their jurisdiction. What do you make of that argument? It's an international conversation, and, and uh, the very public conversation that we've had is, is a carbon tax uh, even an effective tool to reduce emissions uh, here in Canada as it hasn't been that effective in, in other areas of the world or even in some areas of Canada per se. So uh, that's the, the public conversation. The legal conversation is, is whether or not Canada can actually impose a tax in some provinces but not others. Yeah, although let me just push back and I'll just go over the legal arguments. Here's what the federal government says when Saskatchewan and others say, can you impose this tax on some provinces and not others? They say, actually, this is not necessarily a tax. What they're calling it, and these words are important, although they don't sound important, is that it's a minimum regulatory standard, and therefore this is an enforcement, not a tax, and that means it's their jurisdiction. What do you make of that? Either way, they can't do it in some areas and not others. The, the fact of the matter is, is uh, you know, if they're going to regulate uh, something in our rivers uh, that, that do run uh, between uh, jurisdictions, they would regulate it across the nation, not just in certain areas of the nation. The same holds true uh, for this. And, and this is not a regulatory uh, initiative. This is, I mean, it, it is a tax. Uh, they're, they're charging it on, on families or attempting to charge it here uh, in Saskatchewan or going to try on April the 1st. And uh, it is all, it, it, I think one of the arguments in court is, you know, if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Well, if it looks like a tax and it acts like a tax, it's, it's likely a tax. And that's what this is. Yeah, and I, by the way, I agree with you. It's likely a carbon tax in practice, but the legal argument will hinge if they're just enforcing a minimum standard and provinces have, can do that any way they like, but they've got to enforce that minimum standard. If you lose this, what happens? If the court... I don't know, let's say in April, says, you know what, this is the jurisdiction of the federal government, then they can impose that backstop that will start at $20 a ton in April, then what do you do, Scott Lowe? Well, we, we have put forward what we think is a very credible and strong uh, uh, presentation to the court here in Saskatchewan over the course of the last two days. We're proud of, the, of our, our legal counsel that, uh, that presented. Um, we, we feel we'll come to uh, what, what we think is a favorable outcome. Uh, the fact of the matter is, in the meantime, uh, we have asked the federal government that they should hold off on implementing uh, this tax across the nation or in, in, in areas of the nation where they want to impose it in the same way that they held off for a uh, decision in the case of the, the uh, TMX pipeline. They should allow the courts some time to make a decision as to whether or not the federal government even has the constitutional authority to do this. All right, I got to leave it there. Our Premier Mo, great to have you on the program. I will be watching the outcome of this case very closely. Meantime, coming up, the former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raymol, has gone from being Canada's top lawyer to needing one of her own. The scrum digs into the mystery surrounding her shocking resignation and the allegation she was pressured to make a court case go away. The special guest coming up is the former Attorney General, Peter McKay. Stay right here with Question Period. Have you spoken to him this week? I don't have any problem. Well, call it the sound 
of silence. Former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould's resignation and virtual silence regarding allegations that she was pressured to make a deal with SNC-Lavalin, the Quebec construction giant facing fraud and bribery charges, has become a deafening political roar across Canada. Lots of questions here. Why won't the Prime Minister waive solicitor-client privilege that would allow her to speak? Why did she resign? And will the Liberal-controlled investigation, quote-unquote, really get any answers? Was the government actually trying to help the multi-billion dollar Quebec construction company avoid a criminal trial? Let's bring in the scrum to sort all this out in a couple of minutes. Tonda McCharles, senior reporter for the Toronto Star, is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief, is here. Craig Oliver, our cub reporter, also known as our chief political commentator. And our special guest today is the former Justice Minister Attorney General, Peter McKay. Good morning to everybody. This is a heck of a week. Peter McKay, I'll start with you. What did you make of the Liberal-controlled Justice Committee investigation that supports an investigation as long as they don't call Jody Wilson-Raybould and other key members of the Prime Minister's office to testify? What do you make of that? Well, it's a, it's a sham investigation, but to pick up on your theme about silence being golden, I, I have kids, and when I hear silence, I'm suspicious, and I think that's the same theme here. You know, what we really need to hear from is Jody Wilson-Raybould. She is at the heart of this. To not have her appear at the committee, to not have Gerald Butts, to not have people in the Prime Minister's office is the same as if it was a Sesame Street episode. It's not going to do anything to inform anybody about these critically important matters. And that is, was there interference in the administration of justice through the minister's office right down to the director of public prosecutions? That is a massively important question and goes to the fundamentals and and shakes the foundation of the rule of law in Canada. On the liberal-dominated Justice Committee, uh, when you set up a firing squad, you don't have to tell them what the objective is. They knew what the government wanted. The government wanted the thing shut down uh, with as much... Uh, uh, subtlety as possible, but they weren't very subtle. Subtlety of a sledgehammer, yeah. really. Yeah. What do you make of it? Uh, the Prime Minister is still navigating his way very carefully through this and not doing a very good job of it. And at the end of the week, we saw him essentially confirm that Wilson Raybould felt it necessary to ask him, given the full court press that was on from Quebec, MPs, unions, the company, everybody, uh, are you directing me? Are you going to direct me in this case? So we don't know what, what prompted that. What did the Prime Minister say to her? Was that the pressure she apparently, according to the report in the Globe, later felt? And that's, Joyce, it hinges on this, right? What is, the, the, the Liberals are saying it's all just cabinet robust discussion, and some people suggesting it's pressure. It seems to hinge, is it going to hinge on what's pressure and what's discussion? What we are all doing, all of us, is waiting for Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak up. And she's not. She's not talking. So basically, this is a woman who's told her boss, take this job and shut okay, on, 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 fr- on Friday, the Prime Minister, I think for the first time, admitted that in the conversations they talked a lot about saving jobs. And I'm presuming he means saving jobs in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So how should but not anybody, only in how can he, oh, Okay, all right, but saving jobs. So how could anybody have any doubt that... He wasn't getting what he wanted from his justice minister. We have a justice minister. And so he fired her for that reason, okay, for a justice I'm, minister I'm, from the province of Let me just bring you, Peter McKay, because you're a former justice minister, and you, maybe you can shed light on this. When you were in cabinet, well, and they had cabinet discussions, how did you avoid, you know, and you're participating, what should we do about SNC-Lavalin? 
That's your hat as a cabinet minister. Where did you separate that, the prime minister's thoughts on something, when you had to then make an, an independent decision as an uh, attorney general? Well, there's nothing analogous during my time, but let me add quickly that there was a conscious decision taken by our government to pull out the Director of Public Prosecution's office from the Department of Justice, that is to say, to make it more accountable and more, more arm's length. There's also a provision, coming back to what Craig just said, that deals specifically with the jobs, the economics, exactly. not being a consideration yes. when not it comes to these decisions around deferred prosecutions or remediation agreements. And so, for the Director of Public Prosecutions, that pressure was not to be brought to bear, which is perhaps why the company went to the PMO and to the Justice Minister to apply the pressure further up. But again, come back to this issue of what constitutes pressure. Where was it coming from? The fact that the Prime Minister is now talking about this and characterizing it in a certain way and reciting certain parts of conversations implicitly waves privilege. And it's his privilege to waive, importantly. Let's, let's be clear. This is not on Jody Wilson-Raybould. He can and should waive privilege, given that he's only given snippets of those conversations. Yeah, that, just, by the way, that, and, and that's the, key. So Pierre McKay's argument is that, yeah. that by the Prime Minister spoke, spoke about this, David Lametti, the Justice Minister, spoken about this on this program, and that he may have implicitly already waived uh, solicitor And he may privilege. have. Ahead, there, are different, there are different opinions on that, yeah. actually. But yes, and that may be true. But look, just, just to look at the pressure and where it was coming from, it wasn't just coming from... Uh, you know, the company itself and all the lobbyists. Um, I Premiers. reported this week that Legault actually met and privately made these case, this case to Trudeau in three separate meetings. Um, and the meetings went were right around, one of them was right that week when the public prosecutor said, no, we're not going to do a deal. Uh, that was when Trudeau and Legault were in Armenia. Right. And those meetings, he did the, it again in December, he did it again in January. Legault did behind the scenes with Trudeau, saying, look, get this resolved. We need to settle this. Settle it as quickly as possible. He won't say what Mr. Trudeau said in response, but there's no question that this was coming from all quarters. So, so is, is, is that pressure? Is that pressure on the government? Is that pressure the government felt and transmitted to Jody Wilson-Raybould? But we, again, we we're speculating. We are speculating. His, because Lugo's predecessor, Philippe Couillard, the also. same thing. Also, there was political pressure on the political, yeah. on, on the prime minister's office. And you saw the list of ministers that were lobbied and that were pressured. So was there pressure? We can probably right. say for sure, yes, there was. So was the question is, was it well, we undue pressure on the uh, attorney general. Uh, and I, I think those are fair points, Craig. There's another political yeah. element. As we talk about, is there pressure? And that, that's part of what's driving this. But what's underneath it is we've exposed how extensive the lobbying by SNC-Lavalin yes. is, the kind of access they had, and it's raised the question for the Trudeau brand, which is supposed to be the middle mm -hmm. class, the middle class, is SNC-Lavalin an insider that is, quote, too big to jail, so they get a kind of a, uh, a cut of a new but deal. It's too big to deal. nail, too. It's too big to nail. <laughs> and are there good politics in the province of Quebec to be seen to be saving private uh, right. company level? Uh, Peter McKay, I mean, well, I, th I think two, these, this there is were a two new distinct tool. Periods. There were two distinct periods in time here. There was the lobbying that went on to get the new legislation in place. But what's more problematic is after it's in place, and particularly after the Director of Public Prosecution sometime yes. in October said, no, you don't qualify, then it intensified. 
Others have said that the Premier was involved and there were certainly all kinds of representations made by SNC. But what we know importantly is that the Minister resisted, as did the Director of Public Prosecution. And what happened? She was demoted. We don't have well, so no, we don't have, look, we don't, Also, we oh. don't have any evidence that um, the Prime Minister or any other minister spoke to Jody Wilson-Raybould about this after September 17th. That's the only conversation we are directly aware of. So if she spoke, if she would actually speak, we could find more of those answers. Last question to you, Joyce. This is playing out in English Canada and in Quebec in a very different way. In English Canada, how did you give SNC-Lavalin this deal? Did you pressure her to do this? To co in Quebec, it's very different. Does this pose a political problem for Justin Trudeau? Quebec being a vital place for his election hopes, and if you throw SNC-Lavalin under the bus there, does that that have a political consequence? So is he weighing those two forces? Of course it has a political consequence. There are jobs at play, right. and this is SNC-Lavalin. I mean, it's one of the biggest Canadian companies, not a Quebec company. This is a Canadian company. It's like the right? Huawei of Quebec. It is. It is. <laughs> it, is, it, is right. it is huge. It is too big to fail. That is the problem for them. Do they have, or, or, do they have a lot to lose in Quebec? Absolutely. Yeah. But so would the Conservatives have. If this was a Conservative yeah. Prime Minister, I think the stakes would be just as high. Which is why uh, Sheer won't say where he stood but, on exactly. uh, I mean, it is, and I'm sure that Peter McKay understands Evan, that. Okay, last word to Peter Evan, McKay. there's a bigger problem here. There's a bigger problem that goes well beyond Quebec, and that is that she was a female Aboriginal minister yes. who looks as if she was treated badly, is now being badmouthed and slandered around town and around the country, was criticized after the fact. I think this has a bigger brand problem from the Liberal Party, who very much had her as the face of everything that they embody as a, as a party. And on Friday, the Prime Minister fell over himself trying to explain away and regret the, all that awful innuendo. We are going to pick up on that very theme coming up in the next Scrum. Peter McKay, thank you so much for joining us. The rest of the crew is going to Pleasure. stick around. How much political damage has this scandal already done? And as if that battle is not enough, the carbon tax had it stay in court. Will Saskatchewan be able to block the tax? We'll find out. Wob Canoe, the NDP leader from Manitoba, is our special guest next. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, it was a week of storms, but the snow piling up across Canada, you can probably see it out the window behind me, has nothing on the political storms descending on the government. You could probably also see those outside the window. From the SNC-Lavalin scandal to the court battle over the carbon tax, the government is desperately trying to dig itself out of a big mess. What are the political costs? Let's bring back the scrum. Tanya McCharles is back. Joyce Napier is back. Craig Oliver is back. Our special guest on this round is the Manitoba NDP leader, Wab Canoe. All right, great to have all of you here, and Wob, welcome to the program. The demotion and resignation of Jody Wilson-Raybould has been reverberating across the country. We've been talking about it already on the program. In your view, how has this damaged Mr. Trudeau? Well, I think this has damaged Trudeau's reputation as being Canada's first woke prime minister. He was supposed to be very strong on uh, gender equity, supposed to be very strong on reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. However, many women that I've spoken to this week feel that he was condescending and he was mansplaining to uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould in the uh, scrum that he held here in Winnipeg. And of course, many indigenous leaders and uh, even indigenous grassroots folks are upset at uh, the signal that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's treatment sends. 
But for me, the real damage is that this whole affair sends the signal that the system is rigged. It sends a sign to all, everybody who voted for Trudeau because they wanted to get rid of Harper that, uh, in fact, the Trudeau government is not much different from Stephen Harper's government. I think, Joyce, the political debt, Juan mentioned it, for Indigenous leaders are mad. I mean, he set such high expectations, the most important file on women as well. Remember, it was it's 2015. Has that damaged as... as Wad put it, the first, quote, woke prime minister in that brand. I'll take mansplaining, and I hate mansplaining, because at least we would get some form of explanation, because the communication so far has been so dismal that, I mean, it's, it's just one after the other. And, you know, the more Wilson-Raybould stays silent, it's almost like, you know, death by a thousand silences. Every day that she stays silent, they say something even more sophomoric. And you have to wonder if maybe uh, Trudeau has lost the magic. In other words, he's kind of depending on his own presence to be able to turn these things around, and that's not working for him anymore. And that could be very important in the upcoming federal election. You know, election. I'd be curious from Wob's perspective if, if there's anything that Trudeau or Wilson-Raybould could say at this stage that would stop the damage, stop the, the, the bleeding out now of support in the indigenous community, for example. Yeah, well, t talk about that. What's your sense? No, I don't think so. I think the damage is done in the Indigenous community. Uh, the people who are paying attention to this, I think they've made up their mind that Jody Wilson-Raybould appears to be the one conducting herself with integrity, and uh, the Prime Minister seems to be playing politics as usual. If we could uh, broaden it out and return to the larger picture of political conversation, to me, it just looks like uh, the Prime Minister and his office were caught completely off guard by this issue. They did not see this coming, and as a result, you've seen them sort of stagger and stumble each day trying to figure out and test new lines with the public, mm -hmm. and nothing seems to be working. And so, for me, it is a sign that uh, this idea of a permanent government or the system is rigged, that they are only doing communications exercises with the public while the real governing agenda that they hold is for the big corporations and banks in our country. To me, that is uh, where the damage will be longer term. There's a moment in the life of governments when you can say later on that was decisive and there was no going back. In the case of Stephen Harper, it was when we discovered that his own uh, chief of staff had written the check for Duffy. In this case, I think it was a decision to fire a woman who is proud, uh, well-respected in her own community everywhere in British Columbia, and to deeply humiliate her, as Trudeau did, when, without any reason, he threw her out of that job. Um, all right. We'll find out. As we all said, this is not going away. Let me just talk about the big court battle in Saskatchewan. I think this is really important. We had Scott Moe, the Saskatchewan Premier, on the program earlier. Uh, Wab Canoe, uh, this is the carbon battle. And I don't know, most people right. probably didn't watch it. It was kind of fascinating to see the government argue it's our jurisdiction and the provinces like Saskatchewan saying, no way, butt out, this is not your jurisdiction. Um, what's at stake here for the Liberals and, and for everybody in this court battle over the carbon tax? Well, what's at stake is the future of our planet and the question of whether or not our kids are going to have an environment at all for them to enjoy when they're adults and uh, when, when they become parents themselves. So the stakes are very high. We need to take real action to fight climate change. 
If we go to the political side, I think the, the issue that's at stake here is the question of whether or not the federal government is going to be able to persuade uh, Canadians that this approach to putting a price on pollution is the right one. And I'm not convinced that they'll be able to do that because while they are asking the average uh, family to uh, pay more at the pump in the name of a carbon tax. They're not asking big polluters. They're even giving exemptions to coal power uh, under this plan in some parts of the country. So for me, there should be a price on pollution, but the way it's being rolled out seems to disproportionately uh, affect the average family just trying to get by while letting uh, some very large corporations off the hook. But this is not about the future of our planet. This particular court case, we have to narrow it down, is about the divisions of power. That's what it's about. Saskatchewan and the other provinces are not saying that, car, that, that climate does not exist. What they are arguing is over their jurisdiction and the federal government's jurisdiction. Nobody is saying that climate does not exist. There's no climate deniers Actually, in this conversation. Actually, quite a few people are saying well, climate yes, but not, change does but not, not exist, but and not that the is provinces. a real problem. Yes, there are some people saying that, but not, not the people who have brought this case to court. I would, That's what. I would disagree with that. I, I think no, that this, this is, is about, what this case th is about. I think this is about broad national standards uh, and broad federalism and the right for the federal government to establish national standards, which they've always had. And I think in, under Section 91 of the Constitution, you know all about 91... Uh, peace, order, good government. They have every right to do what they're doing, I think. And I think the courts will well, come back. That's what they're arguing, but, but that's what they're arguing. But I don't we don't know if, that's good, if the judge is going, is going to agree with them. That's well, what they're arguing. That's what I'm saying. I don't, actually think, well. I don't actually think the outcome of the court case will affect the government's ability to sell its plan one way or the other. Why not? How, because if, because if I think that, I think that WAB, is, because WAB is on to the nub of it. Uh, the, the government is trying to not make a case only that it has the power to do this, that it, there's a moral imperative, right? And so mm -hmm. that's a political argument. That's not an argument that a judge is going to come out with a ruling or a panel of judges and convince Canadians of the merits of the case, right? Uh, so I think that political battle is still to unfold over the course yes. of the several months. Yeah, although, uh, well, last word on this, look, the legal battle could f actually tilt the field dramatically on the political side. If the, mm -hmm. if the provinces win this, there ain't no political fight because the backstop that the, the Liberal government wants to put on on provinces like Saskatchewan and Ontario and New Brunswick will not fly. So I guess for Justin Trudeau, a lot rides on this case. I think that's true, but I would just remind uh, everybody watching at home that the Constitution exists to be the supreme law of the land and the best articulation of our values of Canadians. The Constitution was not created so that different levels of government could argue about jurisdictional issues well, and maybe it was. escape yeah. their moral responsibility <laughs> and escape like their it. moral responsibility to tackle one of the great issues of our time. Thank you, Section 91. Well, we'll find out. Uh, I mean, the truth is, the pro as we heard from Scott Moe, they have a very different view on that. Wab Canoe, thank you so much for joining us. This is just going to be another week. Of course, the House is back on Monday, so there'll be lots of questions from the opposition to the Prime Minister. Wab Canoe, Tana McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver, and thank all of you for watching, and what a week it's going to be. We will be back here in seven days to sort it all out. Stay safe.